Daniel chapter 12 this morning. Daniel chapter 12. I'm entitled the sermon this morning, And Then the End. And Then the End. Daniel chapter 12. If you found your way there, I would ask you to stand with me. There's a Bible provided there for you in the pew if you don't have one. Daniel chapter 12. And we will read uh, down through the end of the chapter. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust to the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on the other bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? Then I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river. As he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven, he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people, all these events would be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged and purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From that time, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps on waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. You can be seated this morning. Last week, we looked at chapter 11, which gave that detailed overview of the really the entirety of the encounters of history from the Jewish nation from the time of Daniel until the time of Christ. Uh, Each ruling empire that existed in that period of time in which the Jews had interaction with was covered. The Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and then finally uh, the Roman Empire. And now we come to chapter 12, uh, which almost all commentators are in agreement that the first four verses of chapter 12 are really just a continuation of the prophecy of chapter 11. Uh, I would encourage you to remember, as we've discussed numerous times, that when we read the Bible, uh, that the chapter designations and the numbers are not part of the infallible part of Scripture. Uh, those were added much later on just as a, an ease to be able to find your place when you're studying God's Word. So there are times where chapter breaks and and verse numbers seem to not really agree with the flow of the text, and this would be one of those areas. So we would view the first four verses of chapter 12 as that continuation uh, of that prophecy. And in these verses, it's going to be made clear in our time this morning, describe the period of time in which the Roman ruler Titus sacked Jerusalem, ultimately leading to the destruction of the temple there in A.D. 70. 
This was the end of the Jewish nation, in a sense, the end of that great era of time for them, because what happened there in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed did bring about a complete desecration, uh, a complete destruction of the city and the temple, and an end to uh, the practice of the sacrifice and end to the practice of what had been regular worship and how they could regularly worship there in Jerusalem. I want you to notice first there in verse 1, that we find here a reference, again, to Michael, the great prince. And this is Michael, the great prince of the Lord. He's an angel. And if you remember back in our study in chapter 10, he's described there as the angel of the Lord. And in chapter 10, we find there described that he is the one who defends God's people. He defends the nation of Israel. He is the defender of the Lord on behalf of his people. And chapter 10 was an interesting chapter because it describes to us there that unseen battle that unseen conflict that is happening all around Daniel in these moments, but even still all around us today. You see, chapter 10 lays out the fact that behind every physical conflict that happens, there's an unseen spiritual conflict that coincides with it. Specifically, Daniel there saw in chapter 10 that it related to the conflicts of the nation. So Michael, the great prince of the Lord, was the one who on God's behalf defended the nation of Israel in this spiritual battle against all of the enemies and the angels of Satan who represented all of those nations who would come against the nation of Israel and desire to conquer them or to fight against them. And it was laid out through that text that even still today there is a battle that is taking place. We know the scripture tells us that we do not battle against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers, against spiritual forces of darkness in high places, there is still right now a battle that is taking place. My friends, there's a a battle that is taking place in this room right now and between the spiritual forces of good and the spiritual forces of darkness. So we need to understand there's a battle that is always taking place. And Michael is the one who represented that, who who would would protect and defend the nation of God. This prophecy reveals that during a difficult time, notice there it says that at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. Uh, That word in description there, will arise, speaks to the idea of him getting up to do something, right? A a moment has come, a time has come, a, a battle, a war has come in which Michael must rise up and do what he is called to do. And it says there will be a time of distress, such as had never occurred since there was a nation until that time. It's an interesting phrase here, right? So we find in this prophecy Daniel being made aware of a moment, a time of distress that was coming for his people. Now, Daniel has seen a lot of things. Daniel has seen his people be exiled to Babylon. Uh, Through these concurrent prophecies, he has seen some of the events that's going to come and happen in future years. He's not going to see it in person, but the Lord has laid this out so uh, picturesque for him to see through these different empires the things that the nation of Israel would have to battle. Specifically, we think of the time between Antiochus Epiphanes when he would come in and, and desecrate the temple the first time. But I want you to notice here the way this moment is described here to Daniel in verse 1. It says a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, and at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. It says that in all of Jewish history, the entirety of the time that the nation of Israel has existed, 
At this point in time, he says, there has never been anything as disastrous, anything as horrible, anything as, as profound as what is being talked about here in verse 1. Now, that's an astonishing thought. Consider the history of Israel, right? I mean, they were in exile in Egypt, right? Under the hand of Pharaoh who, who desired to crush them into the ground, made them eat, make, make bricks and, and, and build buildings. They wandered in the wilderness. They suffered under countless onslaughts and attacks, always their own fault because they wouldn't follow the obedience of the Lord, but they had suffered in countless ways throughout the years. But yet it says that this one would be far worse than anything they had ever seen before. Josephus, who was a great historian who wrote in the time of Jesus and right afterwards, who we'll look at several times this morning, he gives some great accounts specifically of these events, said it this way, quote, Accordingly, it appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world if they be compared to these of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were, end quote. What Josephus is saying is that if you look at the whole of human history, not just the Jews, you look at every person, every people group, every group of people who has ever lived, he said the misfortune of the Jews in this moment, what's happening to them in this moment, is far worse than anything anyone has ever experienced ever. So this is a profound event. Something significant is happening here to the Jewish people. This reference here in verse 1, what, what event could be talked about here? What event could Daniel being seeing insight to? What event would cause Michael to have to get up? What event would be of such great distress that it had never been seen before? And this is a reference specifically to the Roman Jewish war which began, in Nero, began under Nero around the spring of A.D. 67 and ended in A.D. 70 with the destruction of the temple. This is that great tribulation event. This is that moment, the abomination of desolation that Jesus refers to in Matthew chapter 24. We studied Matthew 24 exclusively when we went through that, and you remember there, Jesus speaks to that group of people. And he talks about all these events. His, he had just walked out uh, of the temple with his disciples, and his disciples were talking about how beautiful the temple was. And Jesus tells you, I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another. And his disciples are, are confused by this statement, so they begin to probe a little further, and, and Jesus begins to describe more events that are going to take place. And they say, well, when, when will all of this happen? And Jesus says, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. Now, here is a moment of disagreement amongst historians, theologians, and scholars, right? Because some would say that Jesus says this generation, and he's referring to an event that has yet occurred sometime in the unforeseen future. The problematic part of that is the phrase that Jesus uses there. Jesus uses the phrase, this generation, which means in the original language, a generation of people, a group of people to whom he is speaking. And in a Jewish mindset, a generation would last about 40 years. That was what they deemed as a generation of people. So if you think about Jesus as he preaches that Olivet Discord there in his early 30s, 40 years later puts you around A.D. 70, when the destruction of the temple would unfold there in Jerusalem. So Jesus was completely accurate in his description of saying that 
all of these things will be fulfilled in this generation. Now, in, in the other side of that, you'll have people who say, well, Jesus doesn't mean by generation, he doesn't mean that generation of people, he means a type of people. So a, a grouping of people, as such as a nationality or, or, uh, or a, a nation of people. So by saying that this nation of people will still be around when these events occur, the, the inherent problem with that is that Jesus uses that phrase, this generation, in other places in the book of Matthew. And in every place, it's clear that he's not talking about a group of people. He's talking about the people to whom he speaks to in that moment. And even those who would interpret Matthew 24 as meaning a different definition there of that phrase will agree that all the other places Jesus means those with whom he's speaking. So if, if we are looking at it from that context, we have to understand that when we interpret Scripture, we don't start with a conceived idea and move backwards to fit our narrative into the phrase. We have to start with the Scripture and move forward. And in doing so, what we see here is that in Matthew 24, Jesus is not describing a yet-to-happen future event for us. He is describing a yet-to-happen future event for the nation of Israel, but it, that was fulfilled there with the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Now, during the calamity of this time, right, the Romans are going to come in in A.D. 67 and, and, and siege the city. They're going to mount up around it. And during the period of time from A.D. 67 until A.D. 70, there's a subsequent number of battles that take place. And in fact, during the part of that time, some of the Jews are squabbling amongst themselves. It's not just the Romans who are sieging them. They're, they're battling amongst themselves inside the city. But it ultimately leads to this moment where finally the Romans make their entire way in, and they're so frustrated and angry with the Jews that they end up, the soldiers do, they end up going into the temple and just tearing the thing from top to bottom. And in fact, Josephus describes the event. He describes that, that there is nothing left. The temple is entirely destroyed, and so perfectly fulfilled there are those words where Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. But I want you to notice there at the end of verse 1, he also says, the prophecy also says, but at that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So if, if here we have described to us this destruction of the temple there in A.D. 70. We have described to us what's taking place. How is it that these people are, are saved? Well, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 15. He says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through whom? Through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. So here, now Jesus himself is making a reference back to this prophecy in Daniel, where Daniel's describing the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, the siege of the city. Now Jesus is saying, when you see all of these things that Daniel has already told you are going to happen, he said, listen to this. He said, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever's on the housetop must not go back to get the things that are in his house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be such a great tribulation as has not occurred from the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Jesus gave his people 
those who knew who Christ was, those who believed his words, he gave them clear instruction. When you begin to see the Romans coming into the city, when you begin to see these events unfold, run, leave, get out of the city, flee from there, get out as fast as you can. And that's why Daniel is able to be told here in the chapter one, or verse one, that everyone who is found written in the book, those who are saved, those who trust in Christ will be rescued. They were able to escape the city. They were able to get out in time in order that they would not be killed when the Romans attacked the city. Now, he continues on. Look at verse 2. He says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, oftentimes, we will sometimes see this verse referred to as the resurrection from the dead in that final day. And because of this, uh, this is why some say that these scriptures here have a future fulfillment. Uh, however, I, I think a more fitting interpretation in light of other scriptures in the Bible and in light of the context of what we are discussing here is that this refers to those who are awakened from spiritual death to spiritual life. All throughout the Scripture, the phrase asleep and awake are used to describe that moment when someone's heart is transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and they awake from spiritual slumber or death to the newness of life and awakened in Christ. Isaiah chapter 29, for the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes. The prophets, he has covered your heads. The seers is describing that spiritual darkness that people are under. But remember what Isaiah says in there in verse in chapter 9, the people who will walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. Matthew chapter 4, in speaking of Jesus' fulfillment of those words by Isaiah, he says the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a great light dawned. Ephesians chapter 5, for this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Right? So when we look at that concept of what Paul describes there, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you, describing that moment of spiritual awakening in someone's life, look at what it says. Many of those who sleep will awake. And of those who awake, it says they will awake to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. From the time of John the Baptist, coming out of the wilderness, eating locusts and wild honey and declaring, repent for the kingdom of God is coming. Then to Jesus standing up, preaching in the synagogues, preaching in the wilderness, declaring the arrival of the kingdom, declaring the arrival of, of, of Christ. Then to the apostles and the early church, the entirety of the Jewish nation was being awakened from that spiritual slumber and silence that had existed there for that silent period that we've talked about between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There were no prophets in the land. There were no speakers on behalf of God. There was nothing. They stood there and heard nothing until suddenly John the Baptist comes out and then Jesus and the apostles come along. Now, just because they are being awakened does not mean that all of them would follow after Christ. Just because they're hearing the words does not mean that all of them would become believers. In fact, the Scripture here classifies these into two types of people. It says 
some of these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And we see this. We see this in the, mom- in the ministry of John the Baptist. There were some who came out to see John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness and who repented. Others just came out because it was a great entertaining show to watch this man dressed in locusts and eating, and eating bugs and honey out there preaching in the wilderness. It was just an entertaining thing. They were curious more than anything, and they came out, but they left and had never been changed. And in Jesus' ministry, it's even more profoundly seen. Jesus preached the gospel. And in a crowd of people, there were those who would repent and put their faith and trust in him. And there were those who would walk away and never trust him. There were those who came to hear him because they believed that there was something different about him. But there were others who came to him solely because they heard he was a miracle worker and they wanted to get something from him. John chapter 5 says, Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear will live. The converse of that is that those who don't hear will not live. So hearing the voice of God, hearing the voice of the Lord and believing it will cause the dead to live. But those who do not hear will remain dead. Jesus describes this. He says, he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the only begotten begotten son of God. The leaders and the Pharisees were like this. John chapter 12, nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So here, the prophecy is describing those in that time, in that period of time after Jesus' resurrection, now some 30 years after Jesus had ascended back into heaven, when all of this moment would begin to happen, when the Romans would come in, when they would begin to attack the city, that there would be those who were continued to be awakened into everlasting life, who would continue to hear the gospel, who would continue to put their faith and trust in Christ, and those would be given to everlasting life. But what does it say? It says to the others' disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who would not hear the gospel, those who would not believe, those who would not be awakened. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory in the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. There is not that peace and joy that comes from Christ to those who will not trust in him. So this ministry continues. Verse 3 describes those two classes of people again. Look at what it says. It describes, the, excuse me, it describes the first of those two classes of people. It says, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteous like the stars forever and ever. So these are the ones who have been awakened to everlasting life. And these are the ones who have heard the preaching of the gospel, either from Christ or for, from the disciples, and have put their faith in Jesus. And as a result... They set to work in obedience to the gospel. Here it is describing them as those who have insight. 
Well, well, what is that insight that they have? That insight is understanding the truth of God. That insight is understanding spiritual things. They have an insight that only those in Christ can have. Brothers and sisters, we have to remember that only those who are believers in Jesus Christ, only those who are saved, have spiritual insight in this world. There are a lot of people who can have biblical knowledge. They can tell you every king in the Bible. They can tell you every battle in the Bible. They can tell you every significant event in the Bible. They can even outline phrases and and characteristics of certain doctrine and theology to you. But if they do not have Christ, if they do not have the Holy Spirit, they do not have spiritual understanding. They can't understand it in the way that God intends for it to understand. All they can have is a worldly knowledge of the Bible. They cannot have a spiritual knowledge of the Bible. So the prophecy says that those who have this insight, who have this knowledge and this wisdom, notice what it says. It says they will shine brightly like the beautiful, uh, shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. It means that they're going to live out their lives in such a way that it's noticeable. Remember Jesus describes that we are the light of the world, that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Like as a Christian, we can't help but shine. That's what the scripture teaches us, that is if we're truly in Christ, we can't help but shine our light to the world because God has done something in us that we did not do ourselves. We can't undo it. We can't change it. We can't turn it off. God has done something in us and through us that was totally outside of us, and now we are his to do what he has beckoned us to do. So he says they will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And notice what it says here. It says, and those who lead the many to righteous like the stars forever and ever. This is what we are called to do. This is what those in the day here in, in around AD 70, they were being obedient to what God had called them to do. What did Jesus say? Go ye therefore to teach all nations. So they're going out, they're preaching the gospel. And, and because they have the insight, because they have the knowledge, now they're leading others, leading the many to righteousness. So even in the midst of all of this that's going on, the church of Jesus Christ did not cease operations. They did not stop. In the midst of the most cataclysmic event that had ever occurred in the history of the world, according to Josephus, the church did not stop being faithful to preach the gospel. The church did not stop taking the gospel to the streets, taking the gospel to the synagogue, taking the gospel anywhere and everywhere they could go. They would remain faithful in the proclamation to lead many to righteousness. And it says because of that, that they will shine like the stars forever and ever. Let me quote Matthew Henry here. He says, there is a glory reserved for all the saints in the future state. For all that are wise, wise for their souls and eternity. We don't work in obedience to God for the glory. We don't work in obedience to God for the results of what we think we're going to get. But the Scripture does promise us that there is a blessing from it. 
The scripture does promise that there is a reward for it. That's why the scripture says, don't store up treasure here on earth where moth and rust corrupt, where thieves break in and steal, but store up treasure in heaven. Well, brothers and sisters, how do we store up treasure in heaven? Your financial advisor might give you the best IRA in the world, but he can't store up treasure in heaven for you. The only way that you can store up treasure in heaven is by doing what God has called you to do in faithful obedience. And as we preach the gospel, and again, it's not about the number of people that you lead to the Lord. If you're faithfully preaching the gospel, as I like to say, every person you share the gospel with, you've led them to the Lord. And it's up to the Lord and the Holy Spirit and their response in that moment of what happens next. It's not up to us to lead, to, to lead them in a prayer. It's up to us just to take them the gospel and to tell them what it means to be a Christian. And when you do that, and you're faithful in telling others about Christ, you're storing up treasure in heaven. And so here, Matthew Henry alludes to that, that there is a future state, there's a glory reserved for us because we strive to be faithful. Now, we see all this taking place. Daniel has been been given privileged information here. He, he's been awakened to something. He's seen something that he will notice here in just a moment that his mind really has difficulty understanding. But here in verse 4, we come to the end of this prophecy. The, the final moments are the words of this long, long demonstration of history of everything that the Jewish church is going to see. Everything that the Jewish people are going to encounter along the way. And he says, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Daniel here is commanded to conceal these words. Now, the word conceal there, and, and it, it, refra- it refers to it there in, in, in the second part of that where it says seal of the book. The word conceal there does not mean the same as the way we would use the word conceal today. We would use the word conceal today as to, to hide something away and keep it from being visible to others. What Daniel is being commanded here to do is to preserve it. He's being told to preserve this prophecy and seal it up until the end of time. He's being told, take what you've learned here and make sure, ensure that it's preserved down through history because there's going to come a moment, there's going to come a time when people need it. And the end of time here is not talking about the end of the world, it's talking about the end of this Jewish era of history that's going to happen here in AD 70. And so what God is instructing uh, Daniel here through this prophecy is to say, ensure that you have taken this book and preserve it so that when the time comes, when this moment happens, that these people will still have access to this knowledge. So Daniel here is being given a weighty task here that he is to take these things, to seal them up, to preserve them in order for that to come. Because what God is ensuring here is that in the moment of great difficulty, in the moment of great trial, that his people would have his knowledge and understanding so they would not be taken off guard. He wanted them to have this confidence that would come. Can you think about it in that moment? Think about the Jews there in AD 67 as the Romans began to surround Jerusalem and all these events began to unfold if they didn't have anything to look to. 
If they didn't have anything to go back to and say, okay, Lord, what are we doing this moment? But by God's providence, by God's sovereignty, they did. They had the book of Daniel who they could go back to and they could see very clearly, very directly that God, again, in his overwhelming reach of sovereignty, had perfectly predicted, perfectly laid out, perfectly planned every single thing that they were going through. It was a moment of encouragement to them. It was a moment of strengthening for them. And it was an instrument of knowledge that only those who were in Christ had. Because notice what he says there. He says, many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. The insight and the wisdom that is related here is only those who are in Christ can have. But it says here that there were going to be many going to and fro. And what this is describing is that there are going to be in that period of time, and, and we can see even futuristic fulfillment in this as well because it, people don't change, is that in an effort to understand the events of the world, an effort to understand what is happening around them, people just run to and fro from place to place trying to figure out anything they can to explain the situation that they're in or the situation that's happening around them. And they'll go to anybody, right? They'll go to soothsayers. They'll go to fortune tellers. They'll go to the wealthy. They'll go to the poor. They'll go do this. They'll go do that. Because the only thing they're trying to do is trying to solve a problem that only God can solve trying to understand something that only God can give them wisdom to understand. And notice here what it says. It says, knowledge will increase. But I think we can testify this morning in our own generation that we have an abundance of knowledge, but a lack of understanding. I mean, right now this morning, every one of us, probably almost every one of us in this room, have a cell phone in our pocket that we can pick up and ask any question to, and it will give us an answer in a nanosecond. But just because we know something does not mean we understand it. And so all of these people, Daniel is being told, are going to run to and fro seeking knowledge, seeking understanding, and knowledge is going to increase, but there will be such a lack of understanding. Sinclair Ferguson said that the knowledge that God is giving to his people here through this prophecy, he, he's giving them this instruction through Daniel, through writing down these words. He says, they may not have access to the details of God's planning, but they know that God has a plan and that he is faithfully fulfilling it. This was the encouragement that God was going to bring his people through this prophecy, some generations later, Daniel's dead and gone, but his book remained. Daniel is, is off the scene, far removed from anything that's happening there in the temple in A.D. 67 and A.D. 70, but yet his word remains that God had given to him, that he had preserved, that he had sealed up, what for? Until the end, until that moment when it was most needed. At this point, Daniel asks a question, or Daniel hears a question. It's a question that no doubt Daniel would have asked himself, if he could have. But look at verse 5. He says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river, the other on the other bank of the river. 
And one said to the man dressed in linen who had been speaking and giving this prophecy, who was above the waters, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? That was the question. Daniel looks and he sees two men standing there. He looks and he sees these two figures on the other side of the river. And they ask this question, how long until the end of these wonders? Now, again, remember, the end is not referring to the end of human history, but referring to the end of this era of Jewish history. And it's what Christ refers to there in Luke chapter 21 and Matthew chapter 24. Where Jesus says, because these are days of vengeance so that all things written will be fulfilled. And again, in Matthew 24, unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus there was describing again in his Olivet Discourse the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And he says there comes a moment when the end comes in that attack. When the end comes in that moment and the time is cut short in order that his elect would be preserved. The question is asked, how long? Verse 7 tells us that the one who's dressed in linen, he's there above the water. He raises his right hand and his left hand and, and swears by him who lives forever that it would be for time, times, and half a time. He, he's making this, this blessing, this proclamation of God, and he says it's going to be for time, times, and half a time. As soon as they finish scattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Now, we're going to go back in just a moment and look at the, the timeline for a time, times, and half a time. But first, I want you to notice here that it says that it will be as they finish shattering the power of the holy people. This shattering occurs with the destruction of the temple. God's people, as they have always been known, were there. Jerusalem was their home, obviously, but the temple was this place where they always came to worship. It was this place that represented everything about what it meant to be a Jew, about what it meant to be a child of God, about what it meant to be a follower of the Almighty. And in this shaking, in this shattering of the holy people, this power source, in a sense, was taken away. All of it was destroyed, and God's people for a moment in time were scattered out as they had to flee away from Jerusalem. And so the one dressed in linen describes this moment. He says that all of these things will take place, all of this difficulty will mount and surmount until that time when God's holy temple, when this place of, of, of supposed power now is destroyed and God's people are scattered. He says, then all these things will be completed. Now, Daniel obviously here is, is still not understanding. And we can't blame him, right? He, he is getting a picture of things that are so far outside of his wheelhouse, so far and, 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 and grandiose that he, he can't even put it together. And so he, he says, I could not understand. I heard, but I couldn't understand. And so I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? Right? Well, what's going to happen after that, right? If, if all of this is happening, if, if, if the temple is going to be destroyed, if God's people are going to be subjugated to such hostility and wickedness, then what's going to happen after this? Look at verse 9. 
the one in linen speaks to Daniel and he says, go your way. That's probably not the answer Daniel was looking for, was it? He says, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. The total understanding of this prophecy would only be revealed as history continued and the events unfolded over time. It wasn't for Daniel to know everything in this moment. What the figure here is saying to Daniel is, Daniel, trust. Trust in God's plan. Trust in God's purposes. Trust in God's sovereignty. It's not for you to know and to understand everything. He says, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. These words were specifically for those who would be alive during that period of time to bring them that encouragement, to bring them that strength, to bring them that contentment in knowing what God was going to do. And as history played out and as the events unfolded, when the time came, when the proper time came, God would reveal these words, reveal this insight, reveal this instruction to those people at that time. But he continues, he says, many will be purged, purified, and refined. But the wicked will act wickedly and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. So again, he's describing that moment. Right? That when the proper time comes, the insight of this prophecy will be unveiled, the knowledge will be given, the insight will be given. And he says, in the midst of that, in the midst of that insight being given, he says, many will be purged, purified, and refined. So how are they purged, purged, purified, and refined? Well, those who had trusted in Christ, those who had heard and believed and gained the insight were purified and refined by the blood of Christ but they were also purged or tried through the persecution of the early church. Now, the wicked are going to act wickedly. We're not surprised by that. That's what the wicked people do. But the wise were going to understand the warnings that were given by Christ. They will understand. It says, and none of the wicked will understand. Because see, here in Daniel, God has given clear instructions about what's going to happen. He emphasizes this through Jesus's Mount, uh, Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus again describes, when you see these things take place, flee from the city. When you see all these things, don't go back to the house and get your coat. Get out of the city because destruction is coming. And his people had insight, they understood. But the wicked, it says, will not understand. That's why they remained in the city. In fact, Josephus describes the tremendous amount of false prophets and false Christs that rose up in those days leading up to the destruction of the temple, convincing people not to flee Jerusalem, but actually to come to the temple and to stay there in order that they would even be destroyed. So God has given his people wisdom and insight in order to flee. Now, verse 11 highlights that timeline that's given to us in verse 7. Remember in verse 7, he says it will be for a time, times, and half a time. Verse 11 tells us that from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days.
the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the surrounding of Jerusalem by the, by the, the Romans again happened from between a period around A.D. 67 until A.D. 70. Josephus describes to us in his book uh, the specific dates of when these things occurred. Now, I want you to take note here that these two events in verse 11 happen in opposite order of the way that they are written. And the way that it's written is not in such a way that they have to be read in exact order. It's just describing two events and the timeline between them. The abomination of desolation was that moment when the Romans surrounded the city. They began to take over the city. And the time of the regular sacrifices abolished did not occur until the temple itself was destroyed. But gauging upon the timeline of the Jewish calendar and the dates it is given to us by Josephus, that from that moment when the city was surrounded until that moment when the temple was destroyed was a period of 43 months or 1,290 days. It's a very clear fulfillment of what Daniel here is speaking of. Now, but notice there that it goes on because it says, How blessed is he who keeps on waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. So there's an additional 45 days on top of the 1,290. So that 1,290 encompasses that time when the Romans siege Jerusalem till they destroy the temple. But now the prophecy or the, the speaker here, the one in Lenin, is telling us that something else is going to happen 40 days later that says, how blessed is he who keeps on waiting and attains to that day? And we would wonder, if the temple has been destroyed, if Jerusalem has been attacked, how could there be a blessing in 45 days later? Well, again, history tells us that a month and a half or 45 days after the destruction of the temple, that Titus ended his siege against Jerusalem. He finally obtained to the highest point there, and he was done. He stopped sieging the city. It was all over in a month and a half. And then immediately after he ended his siege against the city, he granted clemency to those who had fled the city and all of those who had been taken in bondage during the siege and during the destruction of the temple were set free. So if we want to know how is the one who's blessed and who makes it to the 1,335 days, well, there's the answer. 45 days after all these events had taken place, the battle was over, the siege had ended, those who had been captured were set free, and those who had fled the city were allowed to come back into the city. Perfect fulfillment found in God's Word. But now we close with this, because we come to the end of this beautiful book. We come to this end of this book that has perhaps more than any other book in Scripture so clearly portrays the sovereignty of God. And you think about this man, Daniel, now in his 90s, who for 70 years has watched the hand of God move in marvelous ways. He has been given great and difficult tasks along the way. He has been given heavy messages along the way. How does God bring all of this to an end for Daniel as he closes this book? Look at verse 13. He says, but as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will be entered into the rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of age. Daniel is again encouraged, trust in the sovereignty of God. Go your way. 
Go your way, Daniel, to the end. Do exactly what God has called you to do. Trust in him. He says, you will enter into your rest and rise again for the allotted portion at the end of the age. Daniel is encouraged here. Daniel, what is going to unfold doesn't change what God has promised to you. The reward that God has promised to you, the rest that God has promised to you, is not subject to the affairs of this world. Brothers and sisters, the hope that we have in Christ, the hope of our forgiveness of sin, the hope of everlasting life with Him, does not change with the rise and fall of a certain political party. The hope that we have in Christ does not cease to exist because one nation rises up over another nation. God is sovereign over it all. And if we are obedient to him and do what he has called us to do, God has already set all things into play. And at the end of this life, whether it's when Jesus Christ returns or whether we grow old and gray and die the natural way, the promises do not cease. Our hope, our rest, our strength, and our security in him are guaranteed, our allotted portion until the end of the age. We trust We rely, we are strengthened by this beautiful knowledge of God's sovereign power. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you, Lord, that you are a sovereign God. Lord, we thank you this morning that in this life, nothing happens outside of you. We may be surprised. We may be shocked. We may be taken aback by what we see happening in front of us. But Lord, you never are. There's never a moment that catches you off guard because you have ordained all things before the foundation of the world. Lord, as we see so powerfully here, the unfolding of history for the Jews, culminating there in the end of that era and the destruction of the temple, Lord, that hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand, Lord, you described it perfectly to a T. And Lord, there's no way that that could be done except for that you're the one in control of it all. Lord, help us as we come to the end of this book just to be reminded of this overarching fact. Lord, that you are ours and we are yours. The promises that you have given to us, the hope that we have in you does not change despite what happens in the world around us. And when we watch the news, when we get the phone call, when we experience something, Father, that seems to take our breath away or knocks us off our feet, help us to remember, Father, that you knew. You knew. We didn't, but you did. And in those moments when we need strength that we cannot grasp, you're there for us. You're there to give us everything that we need. Oh, Father, may the knowledge of your sovereignty, may the knowledge of your power dwell in our hearts exceedingly. And Father, may we be obedient to you, trusting in you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.